you have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Part 2 of Paul Holden Graber's Conversation with Andrew Solomon. The, the notion also of, of using the word psychoanalysis when just a few moments ago you, you spoke about revelation. And I'm, I, I think that part of, of the ways in which we, we don't experience revelation is when we, when we do countries you know when we go when it, if it's tuesday it must be well one used to say belgium which which does bring me i suppose to the the horrors of what has happened just now in belgium but also the horrors of what happened a few months ago in in paris and the horrors that happened in cote d'ivoire and in so many other places that one speaks about much less and you you're not a political scientist, but you you have a probably a reaction to to what has just emerged, and I'm wondering what goes through your mind. I mean, you have spoken you have spoken to to families whose children have been have been murderers, and here we're confronted with this. And we're confronted with nearly immediate images of the people who may have perpetrated these horrendous acts. And of course, Brussels being the place where my, my parents lived and where, insofar that I ever did grow up, I did grow up there. You know, it, it, just, it just confounds me. And I'm at a loss. And maybe you're at a similar loss, but I, I just am I'm so worried. And I, I'm... I, I think of my father, forgive me for going on for a moment, but I think of my father who said to me just a few months before dying, he said, you know, you should think of moving to a place that doesn't have a port. Mm. Well, I mean, I think there's no question that living in major world capitals makes one in some ways more vulnerable. I think statistically, one is still far more vulnerable to being hit by a taxi than to being blown up in a terrorist attack. I would agree. There's no question that terrorism is on the rise. And as I said, it has this random quality that makes it particularly terrifying, which is indeed the intent of the terrorists themselves. The events are so sickening, they're so agonizing, and the idea that these things are perpetrated in the name of religion and under the banner of some kind of moral code makes them particularly abhorrent. I think the important thing to understand is that we are not in a battle with Islam. <coughs> we are not in a battle with a particular region. We are in a battle with fundamentalism. We are in a battle with Christian fundamentalism, with Jewish fundamentalism, with Hindu fundamentalism, in Myanmar with Buddhist fundamentalism, and of course with Islamic fundamentalism. And in fighting with these different kinds of fundamentalism, we are striving over and over again to come to um, a point at which people recognize the integrity and value of life. 
lives and ways of life that are different from their own. I mean, the most ominous position of the caliphate is in some ways the same as the troubling position of conservative elements within the United States and indeed in some European places, which is those who are not like us are not really human. They are the ones who are wrong, and we have license to attack and injure them. And that's a very dangerous point of view, no matter which side it comes from. And it's horrifying to live in a world in which that view is gaining in ascendancy. Excuse me. No, please. I... don't know what to say quite i mean what what just what just occurred i i mean it's it's everybody's worst nightmare yes it's everybody's worst nightmare but i don't think that the solution to it lies in trying to wall people out because i don't think in a globalized world that that's possible I don't think you can circle the wagons and keep ISIS out. Now, we have to fight with ISIS. We have to fight back against attacks of this kind. We need to figure out strategically how we do that. And I don't think we can do it through isolationism. I think it will require a military effort, though what the shape or structure of that is, I wouldn't begin to say. I think peace is something that's usually achieved through militancy rather than through sort of um, uh, loose good intentions coming from all sides. Um, uh, but I think we also have to understand where that hatred is coming from, and we have to try to rebuild the societies that it's coming from. I always point out that the most successful piece of modern diplomacy is the Marshall Plan. When I was in Afghanistan, people were so full of hope, and they thought that we were going to rebuild their society. And instead, we moved on to a pointless war in Iraq. And I think in doing so, we stirred up a great deal of what ultimately has led to this hatred and to these attacks. It's very expensive to rebuild another place, and it's often thankless. People don't really want someone coming in from the outside. Yeah. But I don't think that we can just make people poorer and less advantaged and more miserable and held in lower regard and in that way somehow contain the aggression within them. So we have to have a two-pronged approach. There has to be a military approach, but there also has to be an approach of helping other cultures to resolve whatever they understand their deepest problems to be. The, the work you do, you're, you're the... Is it the president of Penn or the president of the board of, of Penn? The president of Penn. Um, in 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 what way does 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 Penn further some of the 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 values and hopes you just expressed? Penn is a free speech organization, and we try to champion the rights of people all over the world to free speech. Now, free speech is always a complicated idea. There's some speech that's hate speech and that should not be free, and we recognize that. But many governments attempt to exercise control by silencing their opponents. And it is our belief that there can be no successful regime that doesn't brook dissatisfaction and opposition. 
that poets and writers and those who create literature should be able to speak openly and freely without fear for their physical safety, and that people who are imprisoned or jailed um, or silenced because of what they've said make for a weaker society. You know, there's an ecological imperative to have diversity. We all worry about the elimination of multiple species and what effect that will ultimately have on the planet's ability to continue. And likewise, there is a value in a diversity of points of view and in the expression of a diversity of points of view. And as that gets closed down, you have systems that fail in the same way the ecosystem will fail if we lose too many species. And many governments are actively involved, and indeed many vigilante groups such as ISIS are actively involved in trying to close down the widest version of free speech. And we believe as an organization, and I believe as an individual, that in doing that, we impoverish ourselves, impoverish the world, impoverish the ability of people to make wise decisions. You know, um, years back, I met Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, and he, he said to me that, well, he spoke to me about his love of French literature, particularly Camus and Hugo. He reread, I think, The Plague every year, just to remind himself of things that mattered to him, and then went on to tell me that his mother, we're back to mothers, I'm sorry, but his mother had told him that as he was progressing in his career, maybe before he became a Supreme Court justice or just as he did, that it was really important for him to read a lot of literature because it was the best way for him to put himself in someone's, somebody else's shoes, to put himself in someone else's perhaps uncomfortable shoes. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if this resonates with you. It resonates very, very deeply, both in terms of what I try to do in my own writing and in terms um, of what I think other books have done for me. Um, literature is indeed a means of putting yourself in other often uncomfortable shoes. You can't, in any ordinary life, experience all of what the world has to offer. If you lived a thousand years, you couldn't do it. But if you read, you can expand your, um, you can expand your education so hugely and so vastly by thinking, oh, oh, that's a way of thinking about that. I can think of books that I've read in which I have moments of extraordinary recognition and thought that book expresses my inner self better than I can express my inner self myself. Give me an example. And, oh, I remember feeling that when I read um, To the Lighthouse. Um, I remember feeling it in some ways when I read Proust. I thought there's a vocabulary for feelings I've had that I could never articulate. But I've also read other books. I've read Tolstoy, for example. You mentioned Tolstoy earlier. I've read Tolstoy and thought to myself, this isn't the way that I have seen things, but now I understand this way of seeing things that I would never have been able to grasp otherwise. And it will inform the way I interact with all of the people whose beliefs, even if they can't articulate them with the brilliance with which he 
So here, it's so interesting, isn't it? It's that, that literature and expanding one's horizons in those ways can work at least in two ways, and probably in 25 ways, and maybe in 5,000 ways. But the two ways, at least for now, are one is of recognition, where you feel that somebody is speaking better than you could as you're reading silently what you're feeling. And so you it's as if you've come to a land that you may not have quite known before, but you recognize the plants and now can name them. And the other one is, oh, this is a really a, a, a place I don't at all recognize, but now I have some feeling and understanding for it, and therefore I will be able to work that land. Yes, I think that's right. I think it gives you the sense of what else you are capable of, and also a sense of what other people are capable of, what other peoples are capable of as well. Um, it breaks down the feeling of the, the finite that so often attends ordinary human experience. Why, why, do you, why did you feel the, the, the need to collect these travel pieces, if one can call them that, I think they're much more than that, of, of the last 25 years. Did you, did you in part do it just to see how, over time, your perception of the world changed? Well, it was fascinating to me, of course, to reread all the old material and see yeah. how my perceptions had changed and how I grew up over the, of the time that the book was reported. But I really did it, I think, because I feel as though we are descending into a terrible xenophobia. We are closing ourselves off to other points of view in ways that feel extremely dangerous to me. And I wanted to write a book that said, this is the world, learn how to welcome it. I feel like there's a political urgency to that at the moment that there wasn't 10 years ago or even five years ago. Um, that's gradually built, probably in some ways since 9-11, but especially in these last few years with the rise of, you know, the, um, uh, the UKIP in Britain and um, Marine Le Pen in France and Donald Trump in America and all of these other um, uh, demagogues um, who are preaching a gospel of blissful isolationism. I thought it's time to say, no, actually, that doesn't work and it isn't the right solution to the very real problems that I also recognize. You know, um, I came across a line by H.L. Mencken on the demagogue. I wonder if you know it. I'm going to read it to you and maybe you can comment on it. He says a demagogue is one who preaches doctrines he knows to be untrue to men he knows to be idiots. <laughs> I think that's a very good description of what's been going on in the examples that I've just given you. I, I mean, but it is, it is un, uncanny what we're living through now. And you know, the the rise of Trump does not surprise those people who you mentioned on the other side of the pond. My friends and and acquaintances in Europe 
be it in France, be it in Belgium, be it in Italy, they, Marine Le Pen, you know, 24% of the vote, Berlusconi elected. I mean, of course, there's a difference between both of those people and Trump, but there's also great similarity. There's, um, there's a feeling of kindredness. There is great similarity, it's true. Um, and uh, I think that the um, I think that what is going on is going on on a large scale. But I mean, I think it's a response to you know partly to sort of modernity and the internet and the alienation that it brings, but also to these terrorist attacks which are now taking place in many different places, and to the general bewilderment of the West as to why everyone is so angry at us. As a father, um, the world around you, as we're expressing it now, is it something that that worries you? Do you want to protect your 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 family from it, or do you feel the way you felt taking these journeys that it is time to go? as soon as they can, and travel the world? I will answer that question, and I will also warn you, um, sadly, that as a father, I have to take my son to the doctor. Um, in a few minutes. Oh, in a couple of minutes. Yes. I, 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 this is the nature of a phone call, which is something that I quite like. As, as do I, um, and I only wish I could stay on. No, 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 no. We, this is perfect. But the answer to your question, I think, lies in what was said to me by a psychiatrist in Rio de Janeiro, who said to me that he treats well-to-do people in Rio for a fee and treats people within the favelas for free. And he said, and I take my children with me, not only into the pacified favelas, but also into the ones where there is still violence and gang life. He said, and I do it even though I know that it is physically dangerous because I believe that the danger they encounter by coming with me is less than the danger they uh, integrate when they live lives of paranoia and fear with no contact with people who live within a mile of their own home. And I have ended up thinking that while I obviously don't put my children in acutely dangerous situations, if I can possibly avoid it, and I can be very, very protective as a father, I also want to take them from place to place because I don't want them to grow up with a sense that the world is primarily threatening. I want them to grow up with a sense that there are many places, there are many ways of doing things, that there are dangers at home that don't exist abroad, that there are dangers abroad that don't exist at home. If I can give them anything from my experience of traveling and from the life I've uh, reported in Far and Away, it's the sense that there are joys to be discovered almost every place. And what I want them to grow up with is that breadth of experience. That's the focus. Well, the, the, the world should be, should, as you said, Earlier on, we should welcome it, and we should also be be frightened to coddle our our children and our friends too much, expose ourselves a little more. Andrew, thank you 
Thank you very, very much. And um, I love talking to you. Oh, my thanks to you. I always love talking to you. I'm honored to be the recipient of your phone call, and I look forward to meeting you in 3D before very much longer. You will, and I'm, I'm looking forward to when Far and Away comes out and for many, many, many people to journey with you in that book. Thank you, Paul. Take good care. And you. Bye-bye.